This is the Mike Garrigan Podcast. Welcome to episode 14 of 24 in the Transitions podcast series from MikeGarrigan.com. My name is Mike Garrigan. This is a continuation of episode 13 of 24. In the summer of 1991, I remember walking through the bookstore. A Star Wars book I had never seen before stood on a featured end cap. Heir to the Empire featured a movie-like book cover that commanded an immediate purchase. I think I had saved up $20 to buy something, but I forgot whatever I had in mind to buy at the time, and I went straight for the new Star Wars book. I ran home and I read it immediately. Uh, the, the internet wasn't around back then, so it was hard to tell exactly what was going on. Uh, was this George Lucas's vision for Episode 7? Was this the continuation of the original trilogy? Uh, it turned out that it was an authorized, expanded universe title that continued the Star Wars story outside of the movies, but in novel form. A second and third title to this Thrawn trilogy, as it would be known, emerged in the subsequent years. Some who were ardent fans of the movies eschewed these novels for whatever reason, and thus there was yet another split in the fandom. Those who acknowledged the expanded universe novels and those who stuck to the movies. In 1996, an odd multimedia experiment emerged Shadows of Empire existed as a novel, a video game, and a comic. The project also included trading cards, a soundtrack, and even action figures. All that was missing was a movie. At the time, I didn't regard the book or the video game as anything particularly special, but among some fans... The misogyny of Prince Zizor, Zizor? I think that's how you say it, and the banality of Dash Rendar was downright offensive. There's an entire episode of the podcast Full of Sith, which I think everybody should listen to, uh, that is devoted to breaking down and tearing apart this project. And here, yet another division in the fandom appeared. In 1997, things got interesting. Lucasfilm re-released the original trilogy as a theatrical-run special edition. Star Wars had a new name, Episode Four: A New Hope, which was absent from the original theatrical run. It was just called Star Wars. And featured in the special edition of Episode Four was newly rendered effects that replaced the popsicle stick-like effects that weren't necessarily a bad thing, but they seemed to date the effects of the original film. And also, there was a, a new scene with Jabba the Hutt. Uh, a few minor and controversial changes occurred, too, namely uh, Greedo 
shooting first rather than Han in their altercation in the Moss Eisley Cantina. And, and this sort of colored Han as a, as a lighter character than the swindler that uh, he was in the original version. And whenever you see Han shot first t-shirts, this is what those shirts refer to. And more than anything else in the history of Star Wars, this one change, this specific change, has enraged fans more than anything else, except perhaps uh, the Jar Jar debacle. Uh, Special editions of Empire and Jedi similarly appeared. Empire's changes were, were mainly in the optical composites from the Hoth snow battle, as well as uh, completed backgrounds from Cloud City. The, the movie wasn't as small as it was in the original run. Uh, a few unnecessary changes to Vader's dialogue appeared, but generally Empire isn't too different. Uh, Jedi's special edition was not without controversy. Uh, for one, uh, Jedi Rocks, a new song, uh, appeared in the place of the original Max Rebo Cy Snoodles performance. Uh, it, it wasn't inherently bad uh, if you look at it on its own, but this song tilted the film even more in a child-friendly direction. And uh, the end of the film featured a, a galaxy-wide celebration uh, with the destruction of the Empire. And, and the signature song from the original uh, version of the film, I think we all just called it Yub Nub, um, it was deleted in favor of this fluterific celebratory piece. And I I didn't care for it. Um, But the trade-off was that we got to see several vistas in the trilogy celebrating, including uh, the capital planet of Coruscant, which was introduced in the Thrawn trilogy in the expanded universe. Again, there was more division in the fandom. What the special editions were building toward was the 1999 release of Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. As the teasers and trailers emerged for this film, the, the anticipation and the excitement grew to levels that I have never seen in a film. Darth Maul's double-bladed Sith Saber and what appeared to be a high-speed race through the desert in some capacity, was was about all most of us could, could sort of put together from the previews, and we'd have to wait until the movie came out to figure out exactly what was going on. The midnight premiere of The Phantom Menace was electric. The theater was packed. A bunch of us had gone out to dinner before the show. We waited in line for, for two hours. And then when we were finally seated, no one could contain themselves. It was crazy. There were kids and adults dressed in Jedi robes, chasing Darth Vader's of all shapes and sizes up and down the theater aisles. And Normally, the theater staff frowns upon shenanigans like that, but this was a special occasion The first Star Wars movie in 16 years. The lights went down and the a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away appeared. And then it was on. And I loved the movie. Up until the first interaction with Viceroy Newt Gunray, which was about 30 seconds into the film. 
something was off. Looking back on it, my expectations of the movie were so high that there was probably nothing that would have satisfied what I wanted to see. As the film went on, there were quite a few cringeworthy moments in the acting, in the insensitive reinforcement of racial stereotypes, and in the treatment of the force. The first elephant in the room uh, you may notice upon seeing The Phantom Menace is that Jake Lloyd, the actor who uh, played Anakin as a, as a young boy, his performance uh, seems insufficient. I'm not entirely sure if this was from Lloyd's lack of experience or if it was Lucas's being years away from being behind the camera or if it was the green screen sets that didn't really offer much to interact with. Um, it's probably a mix of all three. In fact, even even the the most competent, the more competent and seasoned actors in that film, like Liam Neeson and Ewan McGregor, seemed a little uncomfortable at times. Uh, now, I saw episode one 11 times in the theater, and I, I was blinded by the mere idea that a new Star Wars film was in an actual movie theater, at least for the first 10 times that I saw it. And that last time I started to wonder, you know, maybe Anakin should have been Luke's age, around 16 or 17, and, and also if perhaps maybe a different director, someone younger or more cutting-edge, could have sped things up a bit. Uh, the second elephant in the room with the Phantom Menace is, is Jar Jar Binks, and uh, to a lesser extent, Watto, the junk shopkeeper. And um, The Wall Street Journal compared Jar Jar to a, quote, Rastafarian step and fetch it, end quote, that resembled blackface characters from America's early troubled race, racist past. And and Watto, with his uh, concern with money and, and greed and his Arabic accent and his hooked nose, seems to comprehensively instill an unfortunate, blatant, anti-Semitic tone within the Star Wars canon. The racial overtones with which Jar Jar and Watto colored Episode One could have been avoided, had there been a little more oversight to George Lucas's vision, most of the complaints with Jar Jar stem merely from his oddity and his shrill fingernails-on-the-chalkboard-like presence that he brings to every scene that he is in. Defenders of Jar Jar uh, often cite that Lord Sidious needed a gullible figure in the Senate who could carry out the Dark Lord's wishes— other pro-Jar Jar arguments contend that any ridicule of the Gungan is tantamount to intolerance and is closed-minded. E each side of the Jar Jar debate has merit, but one thing is for sure is that Jar Jar and Watto, they, they were highly divisive characters, and with Jar Jar, fans find themselves in a difficult position. I don't think it is possible to be both pro-Jar Jar and pro-diversity. And yet, there are those out there who insist on the inclusion of both Jar Jar to the Star Wars table and 
more minorities at the same time, and, and this seems contradictory. You can have one, you can have the other, but can you have both? I'm not so sure. The mystery of the Force, uh, the spiritual building blocks of the original trilogy, uh, took a most damaging blow in Episode One when Master Qui-Gon explained that one's ability to use the Force was directly proportionate to the presence of midichlorians in one's blood. In five seconds of screen time, George Lucas effectively sucked all of the mystery out of the Force by reducing it to the results of a blood test. Now, now my problem with this new fact is that it raises a couple questions. Why wasn't blood theft an issue in the galaxy then? I mean, why wouldn't somebody just kidnap Yoda and transfuse his blood and, and steal his Force power? Moreover, what were to happen if Yoda got bit by a mosquito? Hmm. Not so sure about that. But for all of Episode One's faults, it still remains my favorite of the prequel trilogy. Along with the controversial characters, there are uh, palpable friends and foes. Captain Tarples, a Gungan with a mustache, uh, as well as Boss Nass, uh, they're, they're creative creatures consistent with the original trilogy. Sebulba, the cheating racing Doug, <laughs> offered a glimpse into how awesome the CGI characters could have been throughout the film. Darth Maul, Lord Sidious's apprentice, is, in my opinion, the best Sith Lord uh, the saga has seen to date. The world-building and, and scenic vistas of Naboo, Coruscant, and uh, Tatooine are breathtaking. And the pod race offers the best action sequence of the film and one of the top in the entire saga. Episode 2, Attack of the Clones, appeared three years later in 2002. In general, it was an improvement on the critiques of Episode 1. Jar Jar's screen time was minimized greatly, and slightly more mystery returned to the Force with, with Palpatine's behind-the-scenes maneuvering. If anything, Episode 2 gives us more insight into the Sith than the Jedi, and um, the film tries hard to be a Star Wars movie, and it succeeds in ways that Episode 1 fell short. Two of the film's best sequences uh, involve Obi-Wan taking on Jango Fett, uh, Boba Fett's father, in a rainstorm in the, in the water world of uh, Kamino. It, it doesn't get much better than that. Also, we see uh, Yoda use a lightsaber, which by inference, it was bound to happen at some point, and this scene against Count uh, Dooku is, is very well executed and is a landmark duel between Jedi and Sith. Attack of the Clones uh, fell short in, in one respect, and it's a big one. Anakin and Padme, the, the parents of Luke and Leia, had no on-screen chemistry. They said they were in love, but it didn't seem believable, at least not to me. And because Anakin's turn to the dark side is rooted in his love for Padme, if this relationship isn't convincing, 
then neither is his churn to the dark side. I don't think this was a writing problem as much as it was a, as an execution problem. I'm not sure if it was Hayden Christensen or Natalie Portman's acting or Lucas's directing, but something for me didn't connect on the screen, and this is the thing that makes me not like the prequels, if I was going to point one thing out. Um, episode 3, Revenge of the Sith, uh, premiered three years later in 2005, and this film would go on to be the best-reviewed film in the prequel trilogy. Uh, the opening sequence went on a bit long, but by and large, Episode Three succeeded as a Star Wars film. It, it had the duty of establishing the conflict that begins Episode Four. Uh, the film offered what fans hoped to have uh, with Return of the Jedi, but didn't get. They, they got to see a massive Wookiee army taking names. And we learned the context for Yoda's exile on Dagobah as well as how Palpatine turned an army of clones on the Jedi. The hardest scene to pull off in Revenge of the Sith was Obi-Wan's dismemberment and charring of Anakin, which Lucas accomplished quite well. The central issue with Sith is the same problem with clones. Uh, Anakin's love for Padme was not convincing, and because it wasn't believable, his fall to the dark side was not backed with a sufficient depth and weight. The prequel trilogy, as a group of films, does a few things better than the original trilogy. The world building is lush and believable. Also, with the exception of the necessity of Tatooine to the story, all of the worlds are fresh and creative. Uh, the lightsaber duels are lively and exciting. Um, they seem geriatric in the original trilogy, by comparison. The three episodic main villains, Darth Maul, Count Dooku, and General Grievous, foreshadow three of Darth Vader's qualities that, in some ways make Vader the ultimate villain. Vader has the rage of Maul, the, the stature of Dooku, and the mechanics of Grievous. With the end of the prequel trilogy's theatrical run, Lucas announced that this would be the end of the Star Wars saga. When asked why he wasn't making any more Star Wars movies, he said, quote, Why would I make any more when everyone yells at you all the time and says what a horrible person you are? End quote. A good example of this fan hate is embodied in the documentary The People vs. George Lucas, where a body of fans makes the case that Star Wars is so important that it belongs to the masses rather than under the control of its maker. In George Lucas's defense, he argued that many of the changes he made to the original trilogy were more in line with his original vision but then he didn't have the money or even the permission to make such changes. This documentary raises some complex questions, uh, the most important which is, does the creator of a piece of art have the right to alter it after the masses take ownership of it? Does that offend notions of common sense? By extension, uh, did the Cosby Farm, member from United States versus Cosby, uh, really have a right to complain of trespass when planes flew overhead? Well, these are 
different issues involving property, they are native to the relationship between property and technology. It is important that when we talk about Star Wars, we, we realize that much of our discussion depends greatly on the underlying dynamic between these two opposing forces, what we have versus how we have it. This one's always a, a favorite. Uh, it's called Sour Milk.
In 2008, a Cartoon Network production called The Clone Wars appeared. It told the story of the gap in time between Episode 2 and Episode 3. Namely, you guessed it, the events of The Clone Wars which are mentioned as early as 30 minutes into the first Star Wars movie, uh, this series was well-received by a preponderance of fans, although I'm in the small minority of fans who lost interest in the show, um, but I realize it did get better as the seasons unfolded. The show introduced a new, beloved character named Ahsoka Tano, who was the apprentice of Anakin during the war. The series introduced Cad Bane, one of the coolest bounty hunters since Boba Fett. The show allowed fans to experience Star Wars in a new medium while bringing in younger fans to the saga. In tandem with the Clone Wars, the expanded universe continued to grow and grow. I'm not exactly sure how many unique novels they w there were by 2008, but it must have been over a hundred. Um, if, if not significantly more than that, uh, the number of video games and comic books continued to roll out during this time as well. Interest in Star Wars didn't seem to be waning or growing. It was just kind of being what it was. The most shocking news of all emerged in October of 2012. Out of nowhere... George Lucas sold Lucasfilm to the Walt Disney Company for $4 billion. With the announcement of the sale, Disney confirmed that it intended to make more Star Wars movies and, quote, buy it, run it, and grow it, end quote. Upon hearing this news, I was riddled with two conflicting emotions. On one hand, I bemoaned the superhero fatigue I was experiencing with Disney's acquisition of Marvel, which featured a new movie almost every season. And for me, this is too much superhero action. Um, but on the other hand, uh, with Disney's keen insight into content cultivation and multimedia immersion, what they could do with Star Wars was limitless, and, and rumors from across the galaxy emerged as to what would happen first, but soon after the announcement, Episode 7 was revealed to be in production. Little other than rumor speculation circulated through 2013. In, in, in 2014, however, Disney made two controversial decisions that skewered a good portion of longtime fans. For one, they brought the Clone Wars cartoon series to a close before fully ending some of the plot threads. Disney would eventually release a sixth season directly to Netflix. However, at the time of the cancellation, it was sort of like having the rug pulled out from under you if you were into the show. Disney's second questionable move was uh, demoting the entire catalog of expanded universe novels, comics, and video games from the official canon into what they called the Legends series. These beloved books, like the Thrawn trilogy, were no longer considered official Star Wars stories, but rather alternate universe imaginations. 
Disney needed to do this in order to launch a new animated series called Rebels, as well as to be able to keep a few secrets up their sleeve when the new films and books actually came out. This would also allow for cross-integration across media without major continuity problems. My wife, Holly, who worked for Disney for years in the character department at what is now the Hollywood Studios, often reminds me that she and many other cast members saw this purchase coming as far back as the late 90s. For whatever reason, uh, Star Tours, that attraction, held valuable real estate on the west side of that park, and they had Star Wars weekends all the time. And Even at one, I got to meet Peter Mayhew, who played Chewbacca, and Jeremy Bullock, who played the original uh, Boba Fett. Uh, Around Thanksgiving weekend of 2014, uh, more than a year away from the release of Episode 7, we got to see our first glimpse of Disney's Star Wars. A stormtrooper appeared in the desert with his helmet off, disoriented. We saw quick scenes of several new characters on the run. We also saw a new villain in black with a lightsaber that looked kind of like a broadsword with two little vent blades on as a hilt. And this trailer uh, spawned two minor controversies. Uh, one, uh, some of the more racist fans complained that uh, the, there was a black stormtrooper on the screen, whatever. Uh, and two, there was this challenge to Kylo Ren's broadsword lightsaber. I still don't understand exactly what the issue with this lightsaber is. Uh, no one seems to have a problem with it now, but it makes sense to me that if a lightsaber were unstable, it would need to vent somehow, and um, why wouldn't it come out the sides? And in true Star Wars form, uh, the fandom was once again divided on this issue. The anticipation many of us felt in 2015 was similar to the Episode One buildup. Uh, Disney made a point to market the new film by its main title than, rather than its episode number. It was just called The Force Awakens in, in marketing. Uh, the Force Awakens eventually premiered in December of 2015. And personally, I associate Star Wars with summer. So this film was, was kind of like a Grinch <laughs> that, that stole Christmas in some ways. It was also really warm, unseasonally warm in North Carolina this past Christmas. Um, the world now is a, is a less safe place than it was in uh, 2005 when Revenge of the Sith came out, uh, especially in movie theaters um, with that guy who decided to shoot up the theater on opening night of uh, The Dark Knight Rises. Uh, at this premiere, no one wore any costumes. There weren't any lightsabers, at least not in my theater. The first line in J.J. Abrams' Star Wars film was spoken by Lor Santeca, who said to Poe Dameron, quote, this will begin to make things right, end quote. Then Teka hands the location of Luke Skywalker to Poe. In more ways than one, a film that involves the search for Luke Skywalker is a film which attempts to begin to heal the divisions in the Star Wars fandom. Now, if you squint your eyes while watching the film, you might see The Force Awakens as a loose reboot of the classic trilogy. But, 
as an echo of the original. The t two of the three leads uh, from the original trilogy are incidental characters, and, and one character, Han Solo, is a main character, but more importantly, I got the impression from The Force Awakens that Disney was making a conscious effort to heal separations in the Star Wars fan community. A search for Skywalker is a search for Star Wars identity. No one knows where he is. By the end of the movie, we know where he is, and we have a new context for what Star Wars is. The Force Awakens boasts many successes. Aside from the financial records the film shattered, the movie feels like a spiritual successor to The Empire Strikes Back with its relatively dark tone and images of the aftermath of both the Empire and the Rebellion. It's dark, fast-paced, well-directed, well-acted, and overall more in line of what even the most disagreeable fan expected both the prequels and the sequels to be. Uh, the most remarkable part of The Force Awakens is Harrison Ford's performance as Han Solo. Here we see a character that picks up 30 years after Return of the Jedi in not only a believable portrayal, but one that has been changed by the events of the original trilogy. Han was a skeptic of spirituality in the first Star Wars film, but we see him taken its all-true position when asked about the Force. The new aspects of The Force Awakens work well. Daisy Ridley, John Boyega, and Oscar Isaacs each deliver excellent, fast-paced performances, and they kind of serve as the new triumvirate as the, <laughs> to the sequel trilogy. Um, the villains work masterfully as well. Adam Driver's Kylo Ren is an afflicted, temper-tantrum-prone, near-do-well millennial who uh, is just great on screen. Uh, no one is really sure who Supreme Leader Snoke is, um, and Domhnall Gleeson delivers one of the most intense speeches uh, before firing the Starkiller weapon, and we've never seen that kind of rage before in a Star Wars film. Uh, the two issues I had with the movie were the underutilization of Captain Phasma and the repeating of the Death Star concept. Captain Phasma, the leader of the First Order Stormtroopers, has a commanding presence on screen. She doesn't do enough, though. Uh, rumor has it that she was intended to be this trilogy's Boba Fett, the mysterious figure in the background that obtains relevance because not much is known about her. Um, the Starkiller base was essentially Death Star 3. It, it, yes, it was a hybridization of technology, and it was an entire planet rather than a space station, and it used the power of a sun to, to power its hyperspace death ray, but it still involved a trench run and the deactivation of a component on the surface of the planet while an epic lightsaber battle was going on. So uh, these are remixed elements from the first and the third Star Wars movies. In the film's defense, uh, in an effort to, quote, begin to make things right, end quote, uh, Disney had to prove to a divided fan base that it could do Star Wars in a way that understood what it had become and could, at a later date, 
bring in new themes and conflicts and ideas. And I would be surprised if episode 8 or episode 9 uses a Death Star concept. That would be very surprising to me. Uh, In addition to uh, new Skywalker episodic Star Wars movies, and those are the films that we've had, uh, Disney promised standalone Star Wars story films that would elaborate on characters and themes from the saga. Rogue One, which is due out in December of 2016, tells the story of how the Rebels stole the Death Star plans, thereby setting up the events of Episode Four. Gareth Edwards, who directed a recent version of Godzilla, uh, does excellent things with scale. Um, The size of the Star Destroyers next to the Death Star in the Rogue One teaser trailer is uh, one of his characteristic directions. I predict that this film will appeal to the hardcore fans, but most of the general public will probably assume that it's just the next film that comes after The Force Awakens, Star Wars 8. Um, Going forward, Disney has announced um, a second standalone story, uh, a film regarding a young Han Solo, as well as episodes 8 and 9. Christopher Miller and Phil Lord are scheduled to direct the Han Solo film, while Ryan Johnson will direct Episode 8 and Colin Trevorrow will direct Episode 9. The Han Solo film is in the hands of the two geniuses that put together the Lego movie, which was witty and fast-paced and and really funny. Um, I imagine uh, this is going to be a fun movie, probably the the best of the uh, standalone films in in the next five to ten years. Episode 8's director, uh, Ryan Johnson, is, is known for creating one of the best science fiction films in the, in the past 10 years, Looper. Uh, it's amazing. And, and reports um, of those who have been a part of the film and who can comment upon it have said that the script is both excellent and strange. I think this is the kick in the pants that Star Wars needs. After all, Empire was excellent and strange when compared to both Episode Four and other science fiction films of the late 70s. Trevorrow directed the recent Jurassic World, which was, I think, the best sequel in the Jurassic Park franchise. If Episode Eight is as weird as I think it is, uh, a director that can handle galactic scale much like he handled very large dinosaurs, is probably a good candidate for closing out the sequel trilogy. In many ways, Disney's acquisition of the Star Wars franchise and subsequent corralling of what is considered canon and what is not, uh, it aims to clean up the palette. Going forward, new fans of the franchise will have a continuous timeline without too many retroactive continuity issues. I predict that Disney will distance itself from the prequels as much as possible, acknowledging them as canon, but steering marketing, merchandise, and story away from that period. I foresee that Disney will capitalize on a wealth of possible stories to be told with Darth Vader in his prime. The Rebels series, incidentally, has done some of this in a recent season.
The cleanup should also have the effect of healing divisions and the fan community. There will always be disagreements. However, this new tact seems to have the best bet of limit, limiting the division to maybe three or four sects of fans rather than the 20 or 30 different points of view that make Star Wars discussions downright painful sometimes. The Mike Garrigan Podcast is brought to you by MikeGarrigan.com.